I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Monday, and it's honestly provocative talk radio for America. And we've got to talk about this border deal. The one that apparently Republicans like Langford, uh, Senator Langford, have said, oh, yeah, this is the deal. This is the deal we're going to go with. And it sounds like uh, Mitch McConnell is in on the deal. And the deal is basically to codify and put into law the illegal crossing into America of at least 5,000 illegal aliens every single day. And if your first reaction to that is like, I guess, many Democrats say, well, it's better than 10,000 a day, which is where we're sitting right now. No, it's not. 5,000 people illegally crossing into America, and only if the number goes north of 5,000 for seven days, or if it ever gets to 8,500, which is lower than what it is right now, only then do you actually have a mandated shutdown of the border. This is the craziness that even some Republicans on Capitol Hill are actually trying to shovel out with a barn shovel to the rest of us. And I would suggest that you tell your members of Congress, don't you dare vote for that thing. If you do, you're going to find yourself with a pink slip and you're going to be looking for other work because you're not going to be our representative and you're not going to be our senator anymore. But Gateway Pundit suggests this may be just a giant smokescreen for a whole bunch of world aid. Because this package, it's a mess of things. It's money for Taiwan. It's money for Ukraine. It's money for Israel. And it's a, a few tens of billions for America's border. Except that it doesn't actually protect the border. All it does is say, slow down the entry of illegal aliens to about 1.8 million per year or 5,000 per day, and we'll be fine. And if you say, what if it goes beyond that? Hey, I think the Mexican drug cartels, the ones that engage in trafficking of human beings, trafficking of children, trafficking of child pornography, trafficking of drugs and every other thing that they can make money on, I think they've got this thing dialed in so tight it's almost like they were working with the Biden administration to do this to America. That's what's going on. You almost want to ask, well, how much money is Hunter Biden making on this deal? Because a deal this sweet, a deal this fat, $118 billion, and they have the temerity to call it a national security package. Hunter Biden's got to be making money on this. I mean, the Biden crime family, they understand that Papa Joe, he's going to be looking at some serious financial and legal bills after he gets out of office and could face prosecution at that point. But consider what it proposes. Just over $60 billion to support Ukraine, which nobody on Capitol Hill seems to have any stomach for. And thank God for that. I've been asking the question since the beginning of this, almost two full years ago, where is America's national security interest in shipping off tens of billions of dollars to a notoriously corrupt country like Ukraine, where the Biden crime family has infamously made lots of money already. $14 billion in security assistance for Israel, $2.4 billion to support operations in U.S. Central Command uh, for expenditures related to what's going on in the Red Sea. 
Remember what's going on in the Red Sea? The Houthi terrorists have decided to attack American naval ships and American commercial shipping, and we're going to have to deal with this. And who's funding all of this mess? Well, you could say the Iranian mad mullahs are funding it, but who's allowing them all these billions of dollars? And once again, it goes right back to the capo of the Biden crime family, and that would be Joe Biden, the guy who decided not to enforce the sanctions on Iran to allow them to sell oil at now stratospheric prices. What is it, 77 bucks a barrel or something? In other words, Joe Biden shortchanges America on its own energy, jacks up oil prices, declares that America won't even need fossil fuels in a decade. And then he begins to just simply not enforce the sanctions that Donald Trump put in place on Iran. They benefit to the tune of 50 billion. Then he unfreezes another six billion dollars. And all of a sudden, when the biggest state sponsor of terrorism on the globe has extra tens of billions of dollars available to it, Is anybody really that surprised at all that they start sponsoring some more terrorism, like Hamas in Israel, like the Houthi terrorists, like all these other groups? And then everybody's surprised that that was the result. Ten billion dollars in humanitarian assistance for Gaza and the West Bank. Oh, great. So they can rebuild all the tunnels that just got flooded over there and rearm and reconstitute their terrorist ranks. All of this, $2.3 billion to support Ukrainians displaced by the war. So we've got to take care of that as well. And then, of course, this comes from James Langford, Republican, allegedly, of Oklahoma, and Chris Murphy, Democrat, and he's definitely a Democrat, from uh, Connecticut. And then Kirsten Cinema, independent from Arizona. $20 billion to address operational needs and expand capabilities at our nation's border. The problem is that that comes along with a new set of rules that says, get used to it, America. Joe Biden has bent you over for 10,000 illegal aliens on average every single day of the week, about 300,000 per month. But if you'll let us do that, We'll knock the number from 10,000 down to 5,000 and that somehow that's going to make things better when we're only seeing 5,000 a day. And I'm going to keep reminding you that the guy who ran Homeland Security for Barack Hussein Obama, he thought anything past 1,000 a day was a national crisis. And now Langford of Oklahoma wants us to accept that 5,000 a day is just you know, standard operating procedure makes no sense. Anyway, welcome to Honestly Provocative Talk Radio for America. If you want to join the conversation, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can always vote in our X poll. We used to call it the Twitter poll. Now it's X. Should gang raping a 13-year-old girl warrant chemical castration The story comes out of Italy, where the deputy prime minister has demanded chemical castration for attackers who allegedly gang-raped a teenage girl in public toilets. Matteo Salvini says the girl was raped by a gang of seven Egyptians. Gee, they seem to have a problem with immigrants as well. And they say there's only one cure, chemical castration. This This kind of ugliness, the crime that comes along with people who've been flooding into Western Europe and into the United States just seems to know no bounds. And by the way, a little update on what happened in New York. The two cops who were beat down to the street uh, about one week ago, but now about eight days ago. And then they were hauled in, arrested, charged, booked, 
and promptly released so they could hop on a bus and head out to California. If anybody thinks this is the way the country should be running, tell me, please. Let's go first to Jerry. Hey, Jerry, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars, I was thinking that maybe I want to get your opinion. Do you think that uh, Biden's letting all the illegals in because if they all band together and get like 10,000 of them all at once, uh, rioting, breaking in the stores, doing bad stuff, that he could do martial law? I don't think so. I, I think he's doing it because he wants to wreck the economy of the United States. I think he wants to do damage to Americans. He almost seems to be the worst, the worst possible ad for his own reelection. But Jerry, thanks for the call. Coming up, are woke educators destroying your kids' education? We're going to talk about that coming up next. Another strong take from President Biden on AI and the weather. Helping web tech, the web, web, the web telescope. My God, what is this? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Monday and always glad to welcome our friend Ryan Walters. He is the superintendent of schools for the entire state of Oklahoma. Ryan, good to have you back. Uh, it's a pleasure as always, Lars. Thanks for having me on. I got to tell you, before we get into this subject about woke education, uh, it seems that Oklahoma at least has some common sense when it comes to people uh, who are school principals who engage in a lot of extracurricular activities that seem entirely incompatible with a public education role. Would you agree with me? Yes, sir. I, I mean, you know, it's it's crazy to think. You know, I've talked a lot about my teaching experience in the past. I mean, I remember... You know, running into like kids I taught at, at Walmart and them going, I didn't know you were married. I didn't know you had kids. Cause I mean, you know, <laughs> when we're in school, we're talking about, you know, I was a history teacher. So we were talking about the American Revolution, the Constitution. But over here in Oklahoma, and we've seen it all over the country, we had drag queens that were teaching in the school that were literally having shows throughout the day talking to younger kids, doing the um, drag queen story hour at the local library, out talking about how. Grind into our schools. Yeah. Oh, you just dropped out on me for a second. But you were saying you've got. See, here's what I don't understand. In most of the communities, I, I would imagine where you went to school or I went to school, the the principal, the superintendent, all of those people were people uh, beyond reproach. I mean, they they were people who you would say, well, they're they're solid members of the community. Except now, education seems to draw in not all of them, but seems to draw in a surprising percentage of people who are sort of on the fringes of polite society. Or or am I reading that wrong? No, you, you're a hundred percent right. We've started to see folks that are coming in with another agenda. Uh, that they're leading a lifestyle around kids. That's just, I mean, you would never, we've had parents speaking out about this across the state. You have to be a person that people trust with their kids. And that means you can't be involved in behavior that's inappropriate around kids outside of the school day as well. So why is it, I mean, if you ever get a chance to talk to any teachers, I mean, as the superintendent of schools in Oklahoma, I imagine you do, but 
do you do you say to them, do you understand that your behavior, I know there are people who say, well, what you do in your own free time is your own business. There are a lot of jobs, including mine, where what I do in my free time does have, very much has an effect on my, on my you know, on what I do and, and how I behave, that you're expected to behave in a proper fashion. And, and can you have a private life? Yeah, you can. But you can't be living your private life in public the way that drag queen that Oklahoma finally got rid of, I guess she, she, he, whatever, resigned. But, but how they thought that was compatible with what they did for a living, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, you don't have the right to hold any uh, any um, profession you want. You know, again, you have certain professions where you're making an agreement that to have this job, you're going to maintain a certain uh, way of living in public. Uh, you just can't maintain both at the same time. And teaching is absolutely one of those. And, and again, we're going to make sure that our parents trust the people our kids are with. We're going to make sure our schools places of indoctrination. And yeah, I mean, it is an it is an inappropriate place for a drag queen to work. Yeah, and, and, and let me ask you this because Ryan, a number of years ago, you saw all the attention paid to the Catholic Church. I don't happen to be Catholic, but they had a bunch of, of priests who were pedophiles. They had priests who were sexual criminals, and and you would think a big institution that got itself in all kinds of trouble that I don't think is entirely over yet, but they they've addressed some of it. That when that happened, you would think the people in public education would say, you know, I can't go a week, Ryan, without seeing a story from somewhere in America about a teacher taking, to, to describe it mildly, taking sexual liberties with, I would call it committing sexual crimes against children. And the community seems to shrug its shoulders, most of it. Why is that? You know, it, it has been very um, disheartening to see how much, um, inappropriate behavior has been going on with certain teachers and their kids, and and I I think that you've got school administrators that are that are more concerned with you know well this will look bad on us if we if we uh, investigate a teacher or if we fire them because of this so you know we'll just kind of sweep it under the rug and it's just unbelievable that they wouldn't put kids safety first but we see it all the time. Um, we are now investigating every not only individual that does that but every district that's allowed that to happen to hold individuals accountable for putting kids in harm way, in harm's way. Well, and you've done this very publicly. I mean, even the Associated Press says, you know, four years ago you're a high school teacher uh, known for pushing advanced placement history lessons, and now you're one of the biggest critics of public school teachers in the country. And uh, you said you've helped to clean this up. You labeled the teachers' unions as terrorist organizations. I'd agree with you. You said that radical leftists have turned schools into an Epstein island of sexual predators. Ryan, I want people to understand what I'm saying here. I'm not suggesting the majority of teachers behave this way. But what I would suggest is if you're in that majority of teachers who are not behaving that way and you see colleagues who are behaving that way, you would think even if you didn't really give a damn what it did to the kids, out of your own sense of self-preservation, you say, we can't have people like this in our ranks because they're going to bring a bad name on the whole profession. Are you seeing that reaction from teachers, the ones that are in the mainstream? Uh that's right. I absolutely am. And that's part of the reason, you know, I feel so passionately about it. I'm a parent and I'm a, I'm a former teacher. You know, I, I, I expect, you know, our colleagues to act with the highest professionalism and to see people take advantage of their position to harm kids is just uh, unbelievable. And so the reality is, is parents have lost, um, parents have lost faith in our public schools 
And to get that back, we have got to clean them up. We have got to clean these folks out, and we've got to just make sure we've got the best and brightest in our schools and the, and p- teachers that put kids first. It's actually this is how you save our schools. You know, every time you talk about you know cleaning the schools up, they say, well, why are you attacking the schools? It's like, well. I want them to be better. I want to save them. I want to see parents that have great local schools, and that's why we're going to continue this fight for our parents and kids. I guess I'd almost think, look, Ryan, I've told you before, I've got three great employees. They're great producers. Occasionally I've hired somebody who didn't work out so well, and usually you can solve that problem. You can wait to the point where you have to fire them. I don't like doing that, but I've had great luck of sitting down with somebody and say, Do you, is this working out well for you? And in some cases, uh, the, the producer, man or woman, would say, yeah, it's really not working out well. This is not this is not uh, something where I'm able to do what you need me to do. I would think that those kinds of conversations between superintendents and principals or principals and teachers might do a lot of good. Say, look, I understand this is your pri- you know, this is your personal life. Maybe drinking and carousing. It may be uh, you know, whatever it happens to be, it doesn't seem compatible with what you're doing. Can can principals or superintendents have those conversations with some of the people that are on the fringes within their you know the ranks of their teachers? They can, and I will tell you one of the things we're pursuing is we're creating more rules around that to give even even more specific guidelines for administrators to be able to to drill down into those conversations with teachers and, and frankly fire them and remove them if they act in a way that's inappropriate. Um, for kids that, that the age in which are going to be under their purview, um, they can immediately fire them, and we can take their teacher's license because of it. Because, again, we're, we're seeing this. It wasn't this way 30 or 40 years ago. And it has can you get the union on board of, with you, Ryan? The, uh, can I get the teacher's union on board with yeah, me? Yeah, I mean, I mean, because at some point they're going to realize we're, we're going to – I mean, they've had a sweet deal up till now. They get lots and lots of money. They make lots of political contributions. But this kind of stuff can't be doing them any good. Can you get the teacher's union say, clean up your own ranks or we'll do it for you? I'll be honest with you, Lars. I do not believe I can because literally this has been the people they've protected. They go out and protect people who are accused of some of the worst possible crimes in a school, and they provide the defense for these individuals. So they've been a huge part of the problem. They have hamstrung states from being able to fire bad teachers and teachers that endanger kids. So, yeah, I mean, the teachers' unions are just as big a part of the problem as these administrators won't fire them. And I guess the the boldness with which I see, I follow libs at TikTok, and you see some teachers saying, you know, I don't know what to tell my kids. I'm non-binary. I'm not a woman. I'm not a man. And they teach five-year-olds. And you wonder... Is that going to be good when the kid goes home to mom and dad and says, hey, the teacher isn't a boy or a girl, mom and dad. Can you explain that to me? I don't think they're going to have much luck with most parents. Ryan, thanks for what you do. That's Ryan Walters, the Oklahoma State School Superintendent and a former U.S. history teacher. In a moment, why are Native Americans taking issue with the governor of a state who wants a strong American border when the sovereign tribes of the Indian nations... They guard their borders very well. We'll get into that. The Lars Larson Show. The disaster is coming. (laughs) 
upcoming American elections promise some provocative politics, but be forewarned, the Green Agenda may lead to some extreme rhetoric. Die, gas pupper! So prepare yourself by listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Pleasure to be with you on a Monday. Always glad to get your calls for a little honestly provocative talk radio. If you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Well, it seems that Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota, is in a little bit of Dutch with the uh, the Native American tribes in her state. The Ogallala Sioux tribe has come out against Governor Nome. And why? Well, as Fox News explained it, South Dakota Governor Christy Nome was banned from the Pine Ridge Reservation after speaking about, get this, wanting to bolster the U.S.-Mexico border by sending razor wire and security personnel to Texas, adding that the cartels are infiltrating the state's reservations. The tribal president for the Ogallala Sioux, who is Frank Starr, came out with a statement on social media, this was Friday, regarding Nome's comments. Due to the safety of our tribe, effective immediately, you are hereby banished from the homelands of the Ogallala Sioux tribe. This is a statement from the head of a tribe that owns a sovereign nation that is in South Dakota. Now, Owaite is the word for a people or nation. They came out and accused the South Dakota governor of using the issue at the border to get former President Trump reelected while boosting her chance of becoming his choice for vice president. Now, that's possible. Trump has actually dropped Christy Nome's name. But consider what's going on here, because when I saw this story, I thought this is kind of ironic. Let me get this straight. Native Americans have their own sovereign nations. The tribal members are both citizens of the United States, but they are also citizens of sovereign nations. That's what the Indian tribes have. They have sovereign nations. And I've gone to so many different reservations over the years. Uh, many of them have great commercial enterprises going on, and, and good for them. God bless them. But they operate by their own set of rules. In fact, one time I was talking to a, a tribal member, and, and I asked, you're not held to any of the rules and regulations that the rest of us outside of these sovereign Indian nations are held to. And he said, no, we're not. I said, so thing, things like equal opportunity, employment laws, and EPA rules and all that, you're not held to any of that unless the tribe wants to go along with it on its own. And the answer was, no, we're not. We are sovereign nations. We call the shots within our sovereign nations. And, in fact, I can remember a rafting trip that I took with some friends on a river, uh, the Deschutes River. And I remember being warned, if you're fishing, I'm not a big fisherman, but if you're fishing, you can fish from this side of the river. But don't you dare take one of the kayaks or boats across to the other side of the river if you land on tribal tribal sovereign land and you're fishing there and you don't have a fishing license issued by the tribes if you don't have permission to be on their land they will take your kayak they will take your fishing rod they will take the rest of your gear and they will write you a big ticket and you'll be answering that ticket in a tribal court so you've got sovereign nations that safeguard their own borders very very well now i'm not saying they shouldn't 
actually, I think any country, to quote uh, Senator Joe Biden from years ago, you're not really a country if you don't absolutely have secure borders. Of course, that was before Joe Biden decided that he was going to become the biggest illegal alien president in American history, with 10 million in the last three years and more coming in now. But to have the tribes object to Governor Christy Nome helping by standing up and saying Texas should guard its border. We'd be glad to send some expertise and some razor wire down. And they say that somehow, apparently the tribes have decided that they are so into the Joe Biden position on this, that while they'll safeguard their own tribal borders, the borders of the United States, no. Apparently they don't believe that any of that should be sustained. Our question of the day, and I'll leave the name off of this one, Lars, Our country can't sustain the number of people who are entering every day. If Trump wins in November, how is he going to facilitate the removal of thousands of these people? Actually, it's tens of millions of these people. He says, the apocalypse is here, bro. God help us. Well, I understand your concern. But frankly, I don't think Donald Trump is going to have a problem with the way, the how of getting rid of the illegal aliens. He's promised, number one, the biggest deportation effort in American history. And if you take a look back into about three-quarters of a century ago uh, in the 50s, there were some massive deportations that took place. Now, could Trump get away with something like that? I hope he can. But secondly, and it's been a number of years since I talked to a member of Congress who had the most brilliant idea for solving the problem of illegal aliens in America. If you want to know the number one reason that people come to this country as illegal aliens, it's to get a bigger paycheck. It is greed, pure and simple. Now, I don't mind anybody making as big a paycheck as they can ever negotiate from their boss. That's okay. But as long as you do it legally, here's what happens instead. This member of Congress who had, I thought, a brilliant idea, he was from Iowa, and I actually have a copy of the bill because I asked him, can I get a copy of that bill? And it would work very, very simply because you hear a lot of conservatives who say, well, we're going to have to go out and do workplace raids where we'll send the INS and ICE and other agencies in and raid different workplaces that have a high percentage of illegal aliens in them. Nah, that's too, that, that's too expensive. It's too time consuming. Here was his very simple idea. Everybody who's in business in America who has employees, and that's virtually every business in America, every one of those businesses pays wages to its employees. And then at the end of the year, you write the costs of your employees off. So if a business takes in, say, a million dollars, but then it pays out to its workers 700,000 of those dollars, and maybe another $100,000 in whatever supplies they use up. Doesn't matter if you're running a hot dog stand or a Walmart. You've got to, you've got to take off all the costs of running your business. Here's what would happen. His bill would have the IRS simply say to businesses, if you've hired people and you're paying them wages, they need to be people who can pass e-verify. If they're not, you can't write off the cost of those employees. So if you had, say, Uh, a company that was a landscaping company. So maybe you've taken a million bucks a year and maybe you pay your workers $30,000, $40,000 a year to do that kind of work. It's hard work. It's out in the sun. It's dirty work. So you pay out $800,000 in wages out of the million dollars you took in from your customers. If the IRS says, hey, 
None of your employees have matching names and social security numbers and dates of birth. You can't deduct their wages. Well, that means that you're going to be paying taxes on an extra $800,000 in that company's income. Well, how's that going to work out? Well, let's see. You're going to owe the IRS maybe 25% of that number. So if you took in 800000 you know, a million bucks paid 800000 in wages, and you can't write it off as a business deduction because you paid work workers' wages, you're going to have to pay the IRS an extra $200,000. In most cases, it would probably wipe out your entire bottom line. You'd end up making no money at all. You'd owe it all to the tax man. Now, what's the first thing that would happen? if they had actually taken this bill and passed it in the Congress and had imagined, well, you're going to have to go out and enforce it. No, you won't. The first time that a business is told by their bookkeeper slash tax person, uh, I have a young lady who does the taxes for my company because she's smarter on taxes than I ever would be. If you say, hey, if you don't get all those illegal aliens off your payroll and hire American citizens or legal residents of the United States, you're going to owe the IRS a couple hundred thousand dollars. Even on a small business, every one of those companies is going to shed illegal aliens. And if you say, well, they'll just go down the street and get another job, not without proof that they're here legally. In that case, they're going to become unemployable and they will take themselves home. It's a Monday. It's the Lars Larson Show, and it's my pleasure to be with you. And I'm glad to get to your phone calls and your emails. I thought we'd talk with Mike Hill, who's a member of Project 21, which is a great organization that pushes an entirely different uh, stream of rhetoric than what we hear from the political left. Mike, welcome back. Lars, thanks for having me. So we've got a uh, we've got Black History Month this month. Uh, and, and I tend to agree more with Morgan Freeman about Black History Month that I think it's it's kind of ridiculous. Every every month could be Black History Month. Why don't we just make it American, uh, you know, the uh, celebration of Americans? But I wanted to talk about what Project 21 is telling young black Americans about where the future is headed for them. Well, it, again, what we need to do, Lars, is get away from this whole notion of Black History Month. Um, I just about yawn every time I even hear it said, and we're going to hear for an entire month. You know, it started back in 1915 by Carter Woodson, the historic, a historian, a black historian, who used it to educate black Americans about their history. And it yeah. was for a week. And then it evolved in 1976 into an entire month when then-President Gerald Ford um, uh, said we need to establish a month of celebrating black history. Um, and every president since then has uh, uh, recognized Black History Month, and they better or else, you know, the entire left is going to come after them. Um, but what it has evolved into, Lars, in my opinion, has become a black grievance month where all you hear about are how poorly blacks have been treated in the past. And we see the PBS specials of the fire hoses uh, hitting people, dogs being sicked on them and being beaten on bridges, when instead of talking about achievements, all they talk about are grievances. And as you started out, Lars, 
what should we what we should be looking at instead of having a month that actually divides this nation because it signals out only black Americans. What we should be doing is uniting this nation because every American who, uh, let me say it differently, every legal American who has been <laughs> here <you>. has <laughs> contributed to the history of the United States. We, we, we all make up this great United States because of our involvement. And to signal out just black Americans, to me, is an injustice. There's also the Asian Americans, the Hispanic Americans, the European Americans, all have contributed to making this a great nation. And that's what I think we should be focusing on. Well, and those... instead, what we're seeing, yeah. No, go ahead, Mike. Instead, instead what we're seeing what? Instead, what we're seeing is this idea uh, of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which in my mind has ruined the entire concept of Black History Month. And the reason I say that is because we see, it's coming out more and more now, that those who were hired simply because of those quota measures of diversity, equity, equity, and inclusion we are seeing these uh, prominent people who were actually not qualified for the position, that they got there simply to fill a quota, and that is a degradation for the hard work of all people who want to get there. And not only that, but DEI, which has tied itself to this insane sexuality issue of transgender and LGBTQ and so forth, it, it has tied itself to that. So now it's like black Americans who want to uh, celebrate achievement have now been tied to this strange sexuality, which is trying to take over our nation. And so DEI has actually, in my mind, ruined Black History Month. Well, and, and Mike, I'm talking to Mike Hill from Project 21. I mean, I'd put Katenji Brown Jackson up there as an example of somebody who was put in a position on the Supreme Court because it checked a couple, a box or two. And, and, uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre in that same category. You can watch her almost any day of the week absolutely fail as a spokeswoman for the president of the United States. Very high profile position. And you say, how did you get somebody in this position who can't answer questions, who gets rattled very easily? And you say it's because of DEI. And it makes a joke of the real accomplishments of black Americans who actually do have capabilities and are hired because of their skills and talents. And you say, now I'm just going to get lumped in with those two and all the others. Exactly right. You know, we have uh, here in America very accomplished Black Americans, astronauts, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, inventors, scientists, um, academics, um, much more than just sports, even though that seems to be the dominant factor, uh, <laughs> entertainment. Uh, and again, we don't need DEI. We don't need a Black History Month. We don't need a federal holiday for Juneteenth. What we need instead is an entire year of celebrating, let's be Americans. Let's celebrate what this nation is and what it can become and not divide, but unite us. 
Wouldn't it be nice, though, if we could get to that? And that's the thing. I would find it insulting if somebody said, Lars, you got your job because of your skin color, because of your ethnicity. I, I think it's diminishing to suggest, well, you know, because DEI seems to be based on the concept that the only way that black Americans can get ahead is if you somehow give them a, a, a boost of some kind to say, well, they can't really make it on their own. So we're just going to have to help them out by hiring them because of their skin color. How about just hire based on skills and talents? There are plenty of skilled and talented Americans of all colors and all gen- and both genders. Exactly, Lars. You know, as a Project 21 member, uh, we are black conservatives. And this same President Ford, who declared in 1976 Black History Month, that same President Ford gave me a presidential nomination to United States Air Force Academy. And it was not because of my skin color. It was because the year before, I scored in the 95th percentile of those who took the ACT that year. But because of this whole idea of of affirmative action, racial quotas, DEI, people immediately look to me thinking, oh, he must have gotten chosen because of that. And and it's the same for uh, prominent black Americans now. Now people will look at them and think, are they there because of DEI or did they really earn it? Absolutely right. That's Mike Hill. Mike is a member of Project 21. And Mike, we appreciate the insights on Black History Month. I'm with him. As far as I'm concerned, let people be judged by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out our Instagram feed. You can answer our poll on X every day and always tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Monday, and it's honestly provocative talk radio for America. And I want to talk about Joe Biden's response to the deaths of three American service members who died in the country of Jordan. They died at Tower 22, which is the base from which American forces entering Syria, another country that we're not at war with. Uh, they would do that as their jumping off point. And that base was attacked by drones from terrorist organizations tied back to Iran. So Joe Biden paid for that. And then three American sol- soldiers were actually killed, a young lady and two men, all from Georgia. And uh, about 40 people suffered wounds uh, at one level or another. Half a dozen of them had to be evacuated to uh, to uh, Germany for more medical care because their wounds were so serious. So I saw this opinion piece in the hill.com and I want to share that with you. And then I'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our poll on X today. 
Should gang raping a 13-year-old girl warrant chemical castration? They're talking about it in Italy. I wish we'd talk about it in the United States of America. But this piece by Mark Toth and Jonathan Sweet, they wrote, It was Groundhog Day and Friday, both in Washington and in Iran. In a much welcome move, President Joe Biden finally struck back at the Iranian-backed Hezbollah, whose drone strike had killed three U.S. troops and injured 34 mountain more. We now know it's 40 people who suffered injuries in total. Yet even in doing so, the Biden administration had clearly failed to shake its escalation paralysis. The U.S. Air Force hit 85 militia targets backed by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, they write. Strikingly, not one of those targets was in Iran itself. And as he points out, by giving the IRGC and its sponsored militias nearly a week of time and space, CENTCOM allowed its targets of opportunity to become empty buildings. Remember on Friday when I suggested to you that Bill Clinton himself had employed this same strategy. He needed to distract Americans. Back then, I think the issue was Monica Lewinsky at that time. And so he had some cruise missiles fired at what turned out to be an empty aspirin factory and a few empty tents. It's the same kind of theater that Americans have become accustomed to. Not the kind of thing you got from Ronald Reagan, certainly not the kind of thing you got from President Donald Trump. But with Joe Biden, you do what you have to do to put on appearances and make it look as though you're doing something. And they suggest Friday's attacks began while Biden was attending the transfer of the remaining the remains of Sergeant William Rivers, Kennedy Sanders and Brianna Moffat at Dover Air Force Base. And that's in Delaware. But they were far more about the messaging than about deterrence. The Biden administration is trying to present Iran with a deconfliction off-ramp. Why? Why is he cutting so many breaks for Iran? Because Joe Biden still imagines that he can get back to that Iran nuclear deal, even though, as we've talked about on this program, Iran is so close to getting a nuke that the a new JCPOA, that's the... Uh, the ridiculous arrangement that Barack Obama managed to engineer, what should have been a treaty but was not, because if it had been a treaty, it would have gone to the U.S. Senate and it would not have been ratified. So Barack Obama couldn't take the chance of doing that, nor can Joe Biden take the chance of offending his buddies in downtown Tehran. He wants to be friends with them. He's given them about every accommodation they could get. Uh, relief on sanctions for selling oil, $6 billion unfrozen, putting a lot of more money into the pockets of people who are the biggest sponsor of terrorism on planet Earth. And then what do you get? More terrorism. Seems kind of simple, but these days Joe Biden seems kind of simple as well. To your calls now at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Let's start with Joy, who's a naysayer in California. Hey, Joy, welcome to the program. What do you and I disagree about today or tonight that makes you a naysayer? Well, it was your kind of blanket statement that the undocumented immigrants are coming for greed, and that is the reason. Um, I've, I've had four trips to Guatemala um, where we are um, working with churches there and in the indigenous communities. And I'm sorry, there's tremendous violence. You go up into the mountains, and families are trying to make a living by, by selling uh, maybe six um, bags of, of potato chips on the road. I mean, there's, it's, it's, and um, a lot of times if they get to the United States, I think 
they would like to do it on a on a um, workers permit, but it's to get money back home for their families. Uh, it's not a matter of greed. Um, I don't. Well, Joy, I mean, Joy, so can just, I stop you for a moment? The vast majority of people coming across that border illegally are seeking asylum or refugee status. All of the things you just mentioned do not, under U.S. law, justify asylum or refugee status. So. What are they coming for? Violence by their government. No, 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 no. no. Uh, Only if you are being persecuted. Let me finish. American law was written because if you said, well, we're in a country that's poor. Well, that would qualify about seven billion people on planet Earth. We're in a country where there's a lot of violent crime. That would also qualify maybe only 5 billion people on planet Earth. They wrote the asylum and refugee laws to say if you are being persecuted because of your race, your religion, uh, your sexuality, even all those things would qualify if you are being persecuted because of that. If you're in a place that's just dangerous, that doesn't qualify. If, if you are in a place oh, that has a lot of violent crime, that does not qualify. Right, but the indigenous communities are being persecuted. Now, what because is, they're indigenous, they, or because of their race yeah, or religion? Because of their because of their because of their Mayan, um, and it was in the Civil War in the 1980s where many of them, and we talked to people who lost their parents or grandparents who had in a civil war. Again, hill. not a not yeah. not not does not qualify but you. But the government has maintained. Um, a lot of very um, detrimental and violent uh, measures against the indigenous communities. Again, Joy, can I just, I can can shortchange this very easily. All the immigration experts we've talked to, hold on, Joy, all the immigration experts we've talked to on this show said that roughly 95% of all the asylum and refugee claims, when they get to court years from now, will be denied because they do not qualify. So no matter what a wonderful case you make for how hard it is to be in Guatemala as an average citizen, 95% of them don't meet what our law requires to be considered refugee. Hold on. And secondly, Joy, if somebody truly feels I'm being persecuted in my country, then do it the legal way. Go to a port of entry and say, I'd like to make an asylum claim. And then wait in Mexico while you wait to find out if you're granted asylum or refugee status and then enter. When you enter illegally and you tell America, we don't care what your rules are, we want to start making paychecks right now. As far as I'm concerned, Joy, that is pure, unadulterated greed. But I appreciate the call and I always like a great naysayer. Back in a moment, you're listening to the Lars Larson Show.
Ronald Reagan knew better. Do you? All of it began the first time some of you who know better and are old enough to know better let young people think that they have the right to choose the laws they would obey as long as they were doing it in the name of social protest. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you. I might remind you of a little bit of world history that the Nazi regime achieved one of its earliest objective, objectives by expelling Jewish students and lecturers from German universities. And now, all these decades later, is City University of New York echoing some of those same tactics right here in the U.S. of A. Well, Zachary Marshall is on the line with me now, editor-in-chief for Campus Reform. Zachary, welcome back. Yeah, thank you for having me back on here. What is it that they're teaching at CUNY? Well, CUNY, for the your listeners who don't know, is the public university in New York City. And this university attempted to, this month, do a seminar called Globalizing the Intifada. This was going to be a event in which they were going to get academics and community organizers in New York City to teach students how to um, conduct activism both on and off campus uh, for Palestinian liberation. But let's look at what the title was and let's look at what the aims were. This was, you know, genocidal. This was to help achieve the goal of from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. So they want to get rid of Jews. Are they doing a KKK lecture next? I mean, this sounds like it fits right in there. Well, I actually have some great news um, on that score. Campus Reform reached out to CUNY uh, today to inquire about more of the content. And CUNY uh, told us that they canceled the event. So they originally had the title as Globalize the Intifada. They tried to save face once they realized that the organizers, um, you know, said the quiet part out loud and they changed the title, but they didn't change the aims of the event. And now it's canceled. And they admitted to campus reform that it never should have, you know, been organized in the first place. This I mean, who, another example. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, Zach, but who yeah. in the world thought just putting a different name on it was going to make any difference if the content was the same? Oh, I know uh, thousands of people across the country try to do that. This is what happens um, in seminars, classes all across America. You can look at different Middle Eastern studies courses. You can look at different speaker events, and you'll notice the same words, decolonization, resistance, liberation. This is all code language for genocide. And these same people in higher education came out right after October 7th and said, of course we support the massacre of civilians. Of course, we support the rape of women. What did you think we meant by these terms? We believe in resistance by any means necessary. How in the world are these people keeping their jobs? I mean, the funny thing is, Zachary, this our country has become about as politically correct as the day is long. I mean, you say the wrong pronoun, you use the wrong term, you engage in some kind of cultural misappropriation, and you get you get blown up in your job. And yet this university allows this kind of stuff to go on. Somebody in the university administration had to sign off on this. How in the world do these people keep their positions? Well, do you remember the Twilight Zone, Twilight Zone episode where they were all pigs and the attractive people got run out of town? Yeah. Kind of like that. Like the higher education is so dominated by, you know, sheer numbers of these leftists and progressives that they benefit from the system because they have a majority in pretty much whatever they want to do. They've succeeded in hiring and promoting people who think like them. So right now you have 
barely any conservative professors or administrators on campus, and everyone on higher ed is either left or far left. Well, you know, Zachary, maybe call me naive. Feel free to call me naive. But I always thought that universities, which have been a huge disappointment to a lot of us, but they have, you know, either a board of regents or a board of chancellors. In other words, their board of directors. And oftentimes these are very successful people pulled from the community. And maybe they feel the same way. But can you imagine what would happen if, you know, if conservatives say, hey, you're on the board of regents at, 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 at CUNY and uh, you support this stuff. And uh, and we're just going to let everybody know that this is the kind of stuff you support. I would think that most people, especially if they are involved in business somewhere in a community, whether it's New York City or small town USA, would say, I can't afford to be connected to this kind of garbage because they have to be connected to the whole community, not just the pro-terrorist community like apparently the universities are. Does does that not bear any kind of weight at all on these decisions? I understand the administration, but the administration has to answer back to the Board of Regents or whatever they call it in that particular uni- uh, university. Oh, uh, yeah, we're seeing that within the last six months, especially at, you know, Ivy League schools like Penn and Harvard, but this is a very new trend. I would say for years before we had this recent wave of anti-Semitism, what you saw from uh, trustees was that they had a disbelief about the accusations that were being uh, conservative media about what's going on in higher education. They would think, no, these are good people. They don't mean like that. You're creating hyperbole. You're exaggerating. They never wanted to confront the problem in the face until they had to you know, last semester. So what we're seeing here is that the veneer of politeness, the veneer of respectability, it comes with academic events and appointments to trust to uh, boards of trustees. That's all dropping. That's all going away. We're finally, you know, seeing these events and these classes for what they are. And I think a lot of trustees, you know, especially at Northwestern and Harvard, especially, are really having to come to grips with what they have enabled for the last 40 years. I mean, because if one of the reactions was some of these major law firms and other companies that said, if you're coming out of that, you know, that indoctrination factory, don't even bother applying. You won't find a job here. But I can imagine what the reaction would be from one of those law firms if they went to one of their partners and said, hey, by the way, buddy, you're on the board of trustees over there. Are you doing anything to straighten that out? And if not, why are you on the board at all? We don't need the con- the connection back to our major corporation or major law firm somewhere. I would expect that they would become you know, unwelcome. In the same way that you're seeing big companies and big donors say, by the way, I'm not putting my money behind this stuff. I mean, the universities, I don't know what the total is now, but it seems they they likely have lost billions of dollars of donors and donations because of their behavior. Oh, yeah, it's billions. I mean, Harvard alone has lost at least $1 billion, and that's just the money we know about. So, you know, the true figure, I'm sure, is staggering. The private sector, though, is really the trendsetter right now with what you're describing. In the weeks right after October 7th, when we saw Students for Justice in Palestine chapters and other solidarity movements pop up around campuses, especially in law schools, law firms rescinded the job applications from law students at Columbia and Harvard and I think also Penn. And so we're seeing that the private sector is really taking, you know, the um, forward position here. They're saying, not only are they saying we're not going to hire you, 
but we're also going to get rid of a lot of the requirements for college degrees for our own hiring because college is proving itself to be more and more irrelevant to everyday life. And I think now we're starting to see very slowly the boards of trustees at different universities start to pick up on this, and we're starting to even see the federal government pick up on this trend and realize that there is a fundamental problem here. Um, I've submitted 21 Title VI complaints to the Office for Civil Rights against a lot of these universities that are mishandling anti-Semitism, and some of those complaints have uh, led to open investigations at universities across the country. So we're really starting to see people put scrutiny on universities in a way they should have done 30 to 40 years ago. I realize I'm asking people maybe to put their careers on the Mm -hmm. line, but I can't imagine if you're a Jewish employee of one of these universities, I can't imagine that not being a hostile work environment. And when they start to see those complaints start to come in saying, I don't want to be part of this, except I can't leave. My job is here, and you've put me in a hostile environment. It sounds like the kind of thing that would make most uh, plaintiff's attorneys salivate at the very thought of it. Zachary, thanks for the great work at Campus Reform. We always appreciate your insights. Thank you. Glad to have you on. That's Zachary Marshall from Campus Reform. Coming up in a moment, I'll get to your phone calls and emails. We promise to do that. We do call this the best conversation in talk journalism. And I want to tell you, with air aircraft safety issues and near misses at airports, many of you question whether or not Joe Biden has a commitment to DEI and whether or not that is playing a role. Well, I've got an answer for you, and it's located right at the Joe Biden FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. We'll do that, and we'll get to your calls. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Right arm, right leg. Elon Musk sums up America's government. And what I see all over the place is people who care about looking good while doing evil. This is the Lars Larson Welcome Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I want to get to that issue involving the FAA and whether or not the Biden administration and Pete Buttigieg are putting diversity goals ahead of air safety travel goals when it comes to the FAA. But first, let's go to some of your calls. Uh, Doug's on the line in Nevada listening on sure. KKFT. Hey, Doug, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? I wonder something. Hunter Biden was telling the judge for his uh, child support that he didn't have the money. (laughs) And yet he had millions. He had millions in the bank. Why had maybe that five and a half million from uh, uh, Ukraine? But how is it possible the judge hasn't hit him for contempt? Or, or lying to a judge. I, I know if I did it, I'd be in jail. And I'm I would be. Do you have any idea? I, I have a feeling that what Hunter Biden would say is, well, yes, we got these large amounts of money, and then I had to pay a bunch to my other business partners, meaning his <laughs> uncle, Uncle Jim. Uh, he, he probably wouldn't admit out loud that some of it went to the big guy, Joe Biden. But I guarantee you, and plus, his spending habits are absolutely <laughs> insane. 
you know, I think he was being asked for $25,000 a month in child support because, of course, they base child support, at least in part, on how much money does that parent make. And and Hunter Biden would have you believe he makes millions of dollars. I think he does. I think it, it goes out the door just about as fast as it comes in the door seems to be the short answer to that question. Well, I don't see how a judge doesn't uh, hold him in contempt. But I wonder I, something. Did, did, what's that? The green card? Yeah. The green cards that Biden's given uh, the uh, migrants. I wonder. Now, when they get a green card, they get a job and start paying taxes. When they pay taxes, a federal judge will step in and say, look, you can't have taxation without representation. <laughs> and the only way these people can be represented is to be able to vote for the representative they want. I and think that'll come, that'll come at some point, Doug. But right now, if you get that work permit and they're granting work permits right and left, um, that's not a green card. Remember, a green card is a path to being a citizen. You want a green card, you have to come in legally. But Joe Biden is just trying to get them working so they'll stick around and vote for him in November, the way Arizona seems to be planning to do. Doug, thanks for the call. Let's go to Tim in Idaho, listening on the great KIDO, home of my friend Kevin Miller. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind today? Hi, it's Lars. I wanted to call in about the drone attack on, that killed the three soldiers and wounded 40. Yep. Um, I, I worked on military drones uh, in my career on several with several different companies, and there is something completely missing. The story is totally fishy about how they confused that drone coming in with a U.S. drone that was supposed to be returning. All military planes and all commercial planes have this device called a transponder. IFF. The IFF well, it broadcast the really identification IFF. friend or foe. Well, that's that was from World War II. The transponder returns a a uh, encoded message when the radar ping, pings the plane. It returns back. It's a little antenna that's underneath on the fuselage of the plane. Right, but it'll show up on the radar screen as, you know, UAL 760 for United Airlines. So all of the traffic controllers know what plane is where, and that's coming from the transponder. I'll guarantee you that U.S. military drone had a transponder, and it would have shown up on the radar on the air defense, but the uh, Iranian one, would have had it turned off. It would have shown up as a blip. Unless they, unless, well, but can I ask you something, Tim? Have you ever received a spoofed phone call where you get a phone call and it appears to be from another Boise number, but in fact you find out it's somebody trying to sell you whatever, penis pills or gold or something from Florida, and you say, well, how'd they do that? Well, they spoofed it. Do you think that the 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 Houthis no. and the rest of these terrorist groups are starting to get to the point where they can spoof a signal? No, look, they're encoded, and it's it's uh, you know they haven't stolen that technology or haven't been able to to do they can't do the encryption the same way the U.S. is doing. Anyway, I just I just find it totally well. Bizarre. See, I, no I've, one, I've dug no out everything said, I. I can dig it. I've dug out everything I can on it, Tim, and I've heard various versions or read various versions. One is that they would routinely send out our drones 
and they would turn off the electronic countermeasures that would have ordinarily brought a, a drone down. And and whether they send those out with that kind of transponder sounding, uh, and and if they if they worried if we send our drone out with a transponder on it, and the bad guys have figured out how to trigger that transponder, then they can find out when they're coming. Uh, you know, our direction. That's one possibility. The other one was, and and one version of this, and again, details are not exactly, you know, coming up right away from the Joe Biden Pentagon. The other version is that the, the bad guys managed to, number one, figure out when they send out a drone, they turn off the countermeasures. When the drone returns to base, they've also got them turned off. We'll just have our drone shadow theirs in, and, and they won't show up on the radar. And I don't know. At a place like Tower 22, it uh, looked like it had uh, quite a number of service members there, but it's not a gigantic base either. Would somebody have been watching the radar that entire time, and would they have spotted the two separate drones as being one with a transponder and one without? I, I guess it's possible if they were so close together, maybe, but there would have been two distinct blips. There's resolution on those radars. I, I think somebody was sleeping on the job or something. And, and it may be, may well it. be. But I, I also, anyway. Tim, I wouldn't put it past people to figure out, because you've got ordinary thieves in the United States right now who figure out, can I sit in a parking lot and and detect the signal that's sent out when somebody keys their remote to either unlock or lock their car? And there are ways to copy those things. And like you said, they're encrypted but I also don't know what level of technology they've got either. And an awful lot of that technology is getting the terrorist groups. They're buying it. They're buying it uh, the same way everybody else buys technology. And and I think we'll uh, if we underestimate the level of technology they've got access to. I mean, there may be a tendency to think of a lot of these terrorist groups like the Houthis as being, you know, well, this is a 14th century group. They're 14th century jihadis, but they seem to have a surprising amount of advanced technology, don't they? Well, they've, they've uh, captured uh, drones that have crashed from us, and they've got they've obviously got U.S. technology copied. I've seen there's pictures from a number of years ago with the yep. Iranians examining a U.S. drone, and, and that was that. a lot of years um, ago. Well, it's it's continued different over the years. I think different times, but. The uh, those radios and the transponders that's NSA encrypted technology, and they have self destruct uh, mechanisms. I I really doubt that they've been able. You, to you think somebody on our side was asleep at the switch, and that's not a bad theory either, Tim. Because maybe yeah. if if that base has sat there unmolested for a good period of time. That's that's when you let your guard down, and it could be that that's what's happened as well. You may be right. By the way, i got to mention this. You've got near misses going on. You've got uh, airplanes that are almost colliding, 19 of them just in 2023. And then you've got airplanes with parts missing, uh, rivets missing, uh, things that are going wrong right and left. And over at the FAA, under Joe Biden, they're still pressing ahead with their diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'd merely ask you, when you find out who's running the control tower, who's flying the plane, and who's running the FAA, do you want them hired for their skills and talents or hired because of the color of their skin or what's between their legs? Back in a moment, you got the Lars Larson Show.
truth be told, Lars has welcomed naysayers for 27 years, but occasionally... Who is this person who speaks to me as though I needed his advice? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll be glad to get back to your phone calls and emails shortly. First, I want to talk to our friend Phil Kirpin, who's president of American Commitment. Phil, welcome back. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Joe Biden would have us all believe that Bidenomics is working out famously for Americans, that uh, costs are going down, wages are going up, things are going swimmingly. Should we believe that? No, I think there's a lot of economic weakness uh, being concealed behind uh, these positive headlines. And I don't think the experience that most people are having in the Biden economy is uh, nearly so positive as, uh, you know, the you know the media has all these stories about it. I can't figure out why people aren't happy with all the wonderful economic news. And, uh, you know, most people, I think, see these and say, you know, you're not living my life. You're not trying to buy groceries and uh, keep up with all the bills the way I am because they're all going up much faster than wages have been for the last couple of years. And that's really the most fundamental economic problem that the Biden administration has. People are still, from a cost-of-living standpoint, people are still behind where they were when Biden came into office, which is to say wage increases have still not caught up with price increases. And so the cost of living is, is higher uh, in terms of how much people have to work, they're not uh, their their wage increases have not caught up with the inflation that we've seen, and uh, that's I think why most people are still experiencing the Biden economy negatively. But you go into some of the specifics. I mean, we got a jobs report on Friday, and all of the headlines were what a fabulous blockbuster jobs report was, and it beat expectations because there were over three hundred thousand jobs created. But then you open the release, and they said there were three hundred thousand jobs created, but also. We revised downward the last 11 months in a row to revise away 1.2 million jobs. So, yeah, there were 300-some thousand jobs created, uh, but the total number of jobs in the economy is 900,000 jobs lower than we had reported last month because of the revisions. And so there's been all, there, this has been a pattern where they report a big number, it gets, it gets great headlines everywhere, and then they revise it away later. Um, the other thing that we got that was, you know, positive headline news everywhere was the GDP report we got two weeks ago. Well, that was driven overwhelmingly by government spending. Government yep. spending has grown faster than private sector spending quarter after quarter after quarter. And, of course, you know, we're going to pay for that. We're either going to pay for it in higher taxes or they're going to print the money and we're going to pay for it in another bout of inflation. But there's no free lunch, so we're going to pay for it one way or another. We're essentially uh, impoverishing future Americans, including ourselves in the future, in order to, to sort of goose those numbers in the near term with spending. And uh, it's putting us in a pretty bad situation, I think. And I mean, the, you know, the, the total level of government spending for fiscal year 2023 was a trillion dollars higher than it was forecast to be in the last uh, forecast of the Trump administration. So Biden, uh, for between what 2023 was supposed to be and what it actually ended up being, uh, was a trillion dollars difference in spending. And then we've got the Speaker of the House saying that we should applaud him and how fabulous he is because he cut this deal for 2024 that's 16 billion with a B lower uh, than what McCarthy agreed to last year. And it's kind of like, well, I mean, I guess that's better than nothing. But when you're increasing by a trillion, a cut of 16 billion just seems like, you know, counting the crumbs on the table after you ate a whole cake. I mean, it's, uh, it's so insignificant in the scheme of the run up of spending. And one way or another, as I said, we're going to pay for it. Uh, most likely, 
not with the large tax hikes that it would take to pay for all this spending, but with the politicians' favorite method, which is to have the Fed monetize it. But if that happens, we're going to have another uh, terrible bout of inflation. I think this president knows that. He's just hoping to get through the election before it happens. Yeah, and, and what I wonder is, you're right, that when you say government spending is a big chunk of the GDP, and even when it comes to jobs, you know, you see all these different categories, hospitality, healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. Government is routinely one of the largest, if not the largest. And they're adding on all these employees. And I keep wondering, well, if we're adding on tens of thousands of government workers, what exactly are they doing in addition to the work that government was already doing up to the, you know, the month before they hired another 50,000 government apparatchiks? Yeah, very little. I mean, they, you know, they've, yeah, I, I've seen all these articles about how the Biden administration is really getting serious and aggressive about people coming back to the office uh, after their years of, uh, you know, do very little work from home, work from home. And, uh, and then you read into the details, and they, they, they're they really pushing hard for three days a week in the office. And you're kind of like scratching your head like, it's 2024. And so I think most of these people that they're adding to the payroll are not doing very much. It's mostly waste. That said, Sometimes we do better with just wasting money on government employees than when they are very active, because a lot of what they do when they're active is destroying private sector wealth and private sector economic activity with crazy regulations and interference and so forth. And so I don't know what's worse when, you know, when government employees just waste their money or when uh, they, they actively undermine things in the economy. I mean, it's, it's, uh, there are very few government jobs that are actually important and necessary for the country. Obviously, national defense, uh, the, the administration of the court system. Uh, you know, I mean, you could we we could make a list. I'm sure of things we agree on that are actually beneficial. You know, you know, re- legitimate infrastructure projects and so forth. But you know, so much of it is just uh, interfering in people's private lives and moving money around. Well, the other thing, Phil, I know this one's too small to actually rise to the top of most people's list, but my dad, uh, way back when, used to work for the National Forest Service. And the National Forest Service was a net contributor to the Treasury. These days, uh, last time I checked, there were about 35,000 people who worked in the National Forest Service and the bureaucracy. And you say, okay, you've got 110 million some odd uh, acres of, of federal forest land. You've got this tremendous resource. So how much money are you making on it? Oh, we lose money every single year. I don't know how they can do it or how they can keep 35,000 people busy pushing paper with regard to national forests. Now, some of those people actually work on the ground out in the forest, but an awful lot of them, it sounds like, do nothing more than busybody work, saying, let's go out and, as you said, interfere with people's use of their own forests, not make any money. I don't know of any other entity in the world that could own an asset like the nation's forests, which are a tremendous chunk of North America, and lose money on it every single year. Well, it's a, you know that's a, we we could do a whole hour on that, Lars. I mean, that's a whole catastrophe, and we've got forests that are essentially unmanaged because the environmentalists don't want responsible stewardship of our forests, and so we get huge wildfires instead of having you know prescribed burns and actually managing the uh, buildup of, of fuel on the forest floors, and of course. Uh, where we used to get huge revenue from timber activities in our forest, now we have very little, uh, and it was all supposedly to save an owl that it turned out was uh, actually being outcompeted by a different owl that had nothing to do with logging activity. And, uh, you know, once you destroy an industry, you, it's very, you, you almost never are able to bring it back. And, of course, now we make payments in lieu of taxes to all these former logging towns 
that destroyed the tax base when the industry was destroyed. And so now they're essentially on the federal dole because the federal government destroyed those towns. And so now we're paying money to compensate all the towns that we destroyed when we said they couldn't engage in the actual productive economic activities they used to engage in. That's right. That's Phil Kirpin with American Commitment. Phil, thank you very much. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. People say our country is... Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. I know. Lars. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. I'm not making new law. I'm eliminating bad policy. Um, what I'm doing is taking on the issues that 99% of them, that the president, the last president of the United States, issued executive orders I thought were very counterproductive to our security, counterproductive to who we are as a country, particularly in, uh, in, uh, in the area of immigration. Now, that's Joe Biden, and that was almost exactly three years ago, January of 2021, when he says this is bad for America. It's bad for our national security. So he signed that stack of executive orders. I wanted to remind you of where this actually started, because three years ago, America had one of the most secure borders it had ever had, because Donald Trump had done exactly that. And that was Joe Biden saying, well, this is bad. It's bad because it speaks badly of who we are as a country and who we are as a people. In other words, you have a border and you actually enforce it. So Joe Biden was ordering the unenforcement of the border. I don't think anybody at that time, January of 2021, almost exactly three years ago, could have forecast if somebody had said like me, if I had said, hey, You know, in the next three years, we're going to see 10 million people illegally cross that border because of what Joe Biden has just done. You might have called me crazy. You certainly would have been skeptical. Lawrence, we're not going to see numbers like that. America has never seen numbers like that before. And yet that's exactly what's happened. And that was the moment when it started. And now, if you think Joe Biden was bad, wait till you hear what the Republicans are proposing to do. I'm going to give you all the details here in a moment. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. It's the best conversation in talk journalism. It's honestly provocative talk radio. And if you want to join that conversation, you're always welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, and believe me, I expect to get some naysayers on this, there got to be somebody out there who thinks of what Joe Biden has done to America and is planning to keep doing to America is uh, is a good thing. I mean, there must be. Somebody voted for this guy, right? Not 81 million people, for sure. That was a fraud. But somebody must have thought this was a great idea. But guess what? 
Now the Republicans are getting even worse. You can also send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Easy to remember. And if you want to vote in our X poll, we put up a brand new question on X, used to be Twitter, uh, at Lars Larson Show. We put the same question at LarsLarson.com. You can vote in that X poll. We're glad to have you do it. Doesn't cost anything. Might be habit forming. You know the usual requirements. But Let me tell you this. The Republicans are about to try to sell out America when it comes to this new border deal. Because over the weekend, they said, look, we've got this great new deal. And then you start digging into the details of the deal. It is absolutely obscene what they're doing. Now, I want to give you some context. Right now, as of today, we are seeing anywhere from 10 to 12,000 illegal aliens cross our southern border into the United States. It is costing big American cities billions of dollars. And if it hasn't happened to you already, this is going to start impacting your community. You're going to see your community say, why, we have to divert billions of dollars. We're going to take it out of schools. We're going to take it out of police. We'll take it out of fire departments and emergency response because we have to take care of these illegal aliens that Joe Biden has foisted upon our country. In fact, you've got New York City where the mayor, Eric Adams, who's already budgeted $2.4 billion to deal with just the front end of this crisis that was created by a president of Eric Adams' own same party. But now he's saying, well, and we're going to budget $53 million so we can give free $1,000 prepaid debit cards to every illegal alien family. And they get to refill that $1,000 once a month. So they're getting free housing, free food, free medical care, and cash on top of that. It's almost like you say to the, you know, the Democrats, well, hold on. How could you figure out to get people to come to America illegally? Well, they're going to come in anyway. There are better jobs, more paycheck, all the rest of that. Why don't we offer them $1,000 a month if they bring their family in? That's exactly what's happening. You would expect that American Republicans would say, no, this has to stop. It has to stop now. I mean, even Barack Hussein Obama's homeland security guy, Jay Johnson, not exactly the most conservative political figure out there. He said that his staff would tell him if there were five or six hundred people a day coming across the border, that that was bad. And he said when it got to a thousand a day, that was a crisis. We are now at 10 to 12,000 a day. And what do the Republicans propose? Senator James Lankford, allegedly a Republican, is saying that he's cut a deal and the the Democrats are going to go for the deal. It would legalize 5,000 people a day. Now, I understand in relative terms, if you were to say, well, Lars, 5,000 a day is better than 10,000 a day. Yes, but 5,000 a day is still a crisis level of entry to the United States of America. It is absolutely insane what they are proposing, but it gets worse. This whole package is going to be well over $100 billion. Now, some of it goes to Taiwan. Some of it goes to Israel. Of course, because the Biden crime family is involved, some of it goes to Ukraine. But tens of billions of dollars of it go into so-called border security. The only problem is that instead of going with a plan like HR2, which is the House of Representatives plan for closing up the border, for closing the loopholes and the law, for making it hard for any president to open up the borders and cause a crisis like this. No, the Senate plan is a total giveaway, $118 billion in a national security, and that's a bad name, supplemental package. 
And what are the various members of the Senate saying about it? Well, the real conservatives, Steve Daines out of Montana, says, I can't support a bill that doesn't secure the border, provides taxpayer-funded lawyers to illegal aliens, and gives billions to radical open borders groups. He says he's a no. Out of Tennessee, Bill Haggerty says, under a president who started and could stop this crisis tomorrow and whose solution to illegal aliens or immigration is to legalize it, I'm a hard no. And you go right down the list. Real conservatives say no. Number one, $20 billion for emergency spending. And the problem is, he says this is the toughest and the fairest deal. I'll go right back to that soundbite I started with. Joe Biden thinks that somehow America looks bad if we actually have an enforceable border. Well, every real country on planet Earth, as Senator Biden used to say, you can't be a real country if you don't have an enforceable border. And yet Joe Biden is saying, well, we want to have this deal. Give me billions of dollars. I'll make it easier for people to get into the country. And not only that, the Republicans are going to sign off on legalizing the illegal crossing of 5,000 people per day. And only if it gets worse than that can you do an emergency closure of the border. Now, when the Republicans have joined in with people like Joe Biden, we're sunk. This is a terrible thing, although I can tell you this. At this point, it looks as though that deal is dead on arrival. But it gives you an idea of just how far the Republicans are willing to go to sell out to open borders Joe. Glad to be with you. Glad to take your calls. 866-439-5277. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out our Instagram feed as well. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Sometimes the listeners say it best. Hey, Lars, love your show, and I really appreciate what you do. Boy, you cover more territory in an afternoon than a lonely bathroom in springtime. Who's next? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails. As we say, we promise that this is the best conversation in talk journalism, and you can be part of it if you choose to. Not everybody does that. An awful lot of people just listen, but that's okay. We leave the door open for anyone. And if you want to join that conversation, 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you, you can rest assured that every single day, naysayers go to the head of the line. Now, sometimes I have to explain that to people. If you disagree with my point of view on something or something I've said, I'm glad to have you call and do your best to counter my arguments. And if I'm not ready for that, then my argument's not ready either. In any case, you've heard my take on this crazy border deal uh, that has been cooked up allegedly by alleged Republicans, and I think it's a terrible deal right out of the gate. But I wanted to get all the particulars about it. So Ryan Walker joins me now, Executive Vice President for Heritage Action. Ryan, good to have you back. Thanks for having me on. Is the deal as bad as I think it is? And let's start with this. Does it essentially legalize the illegal entry of 5,000 illegal aliens every day? It does. 
this bill, as we've seen the text roll out uh, since last night, the text is very clear. And the senators who have negotiated this uh, are unable to push back on this claim. The text itself codifies 5000 a day before the administration would be required to act in any capacity. That's 1.85 million people across the southern border before the administration has to do a single thing. Now, the thing about this is I understand there are people who look at things in relative terms and they say, well, it's now 10 or 12,000 a day, depending on the day, 300,000 or so every month. So 5,000 a day would be better than 10,000 a day. I guess in, in the same way that drowning in 100 feet of water is better than drowning in 200 feet of water, but you're still drowning, aren't you? Oh, I totally agree. It's like saying you're, a kitchen fire is better than a complete house fire. I, I, listen, Jay Johnson oh, that's a Joe and Neil Biden Obama, reference, isn't it? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Jay Johnson and the Obama administration considered a thousand illegal immigrants a national crisis. They wanted to declare an emergency at the southern border over a thousand illegal immigrants a day. Five thousand a day with the exemptions that are uh, allowed in this bill, like unaccompanied children uh, and others who are exempted from that five thousand number, like anyone claiming asylum. Uh, creates a, a scenario where you could see well north of 5,000 people coming in a day before, again, the administration has to act at all. Because literally, if 4,999 illegals show up at the border on Tuesday and they have 2,000 kids with them, you know, which wouldn't be uncommon, uh, that those seven or almost 7,000, 6,999 could walk into America and we'd say, well, the new law doesn't kick in just yet because because we haven't eclipsed 5,000 alone, it has to be 5,000, not counting this group, that group, and all the kids that are coming in, right? Absolutely. And they say that it's a seven-day running average. So the cartels could very easily game the system. Uh, They are, uh, after all, they have control of that area at the southern border. Uh, And they could look at the text of this legislation, and they could game their entrance and their trafficking into the United States to be under that threshold. And what's even worse is that once that threshold is met, let's assume that it is, the text of the legislation still requires requires the administration to process in 1,500 illegal immigrants per day. It requires that. So our question to the negotiators is, does that mean the Department of Homeland Security has to then go out and search for people if they do- fail to meet that minimum number? <laughs> Uh, So these are the questions that we have about this bill. Okay, and by the way, uh, one of the other pieces of this, all unaccompanied children under the age of 14 would get a free American taxpayer-funded lawyer to represent them? That's absolutely right. We're going to pay for the legal services of these individuals to claim asylum for a whole host of issues that shouldn't be allowed. Uh, They don't have a credible fear or, or threat of persecution in their home country, but this administration will relax those standards and allow them to come in. And we're going to grant another quarter million new visas over the next five years if this deal comes together. I I got to tell you something, Ryan, because all of last week and part of the week before that, I was watching Senator Langford, who's allegedly a Republican, and I'd say that to his face. 
say, well, no, no, don't don't prejudge it based on what you're hearing about it, except that everything we heard about it was exactly what it ended up being. How in the world are they getting Republicans or alleged Republicans like Langford to stand this deal up and say, look, this is the best we can get? Well, honestly, it's a question that we all have. We genuinely do not understand the interest of of a, a senator like Senator Langford. Now, if you think about Senator McConnell and some of the others in the Senate who are really interested in passing $60 billion for Ukraine, uh, a, a whole set of billions for the Indo-Pacific, and, and more funding for these crises abroad, uh, you can sort of tell what their, their motivation is. Uh, but for someone like Senator Langford or someone who's not connected to these conversations around Ukraine funding or any of the other funding that will go abroad to these conflicts, uh, there is a genuine uh, shock uh, to the American people, to to folks in even in Washington D.C. Uh, to say why are they a part of this? Uh, it is it's simply uh, it's it's baffling. So can we at least conclude this thing's dead on arrival and not one where they say, well, we'll we'll kind of fix around the edges and we'll we'll trim it up a little bit and then it'll be acceptable. I mean, this thing's so far from acceptable, I don't see any way that they didn't know that this thing was dead before it even arrived on Capitol Hill. Did they? Well, yeah, I I do think it is dead on arrival. You've seen Speaker Johnson, uh, in fact, his entire leadership team, uh, the, the whip from the House of Representatives, along with the majority leader and the conference chair, Lee Stefanik, have said they aren't even going to bring this bill up for a vote. Uh, and, and this speaks to this broader problem. For the first time in legislative history, we have language in a bill that codifies that the Department of Homeland Security shall release immigrants into the United States and not detain them. It requires that the Department of Homeland Security release potential terrorists, cartel members, members of the Chinese Communist Party into the country, uh, to show up for a future court date that may or may not come. And good luck finding those individuals, because the second you let them off, they're gone. Well, I mean, look what happened in New York. I told my audience that you've got two cops beat down literally and figuratively to the pavement by four illegal aliens, one of whom already has other outstanding criminal accusations, and they're released without bail. And I'm sure their conditions of release said, and don't leave town, and they immediately hopped on a bus and headed for California. There's no control out there anywhere. That's right, and and the problem's even worse, really, when you look at how these individuals operate. They will operate in a city like New York. They will conduct crimes in a city like New York. That's a sanctuary city that has uh, no bail uh, legislation, uh, things of this nature, because they know they'll get off. They'll never go to prison. They'll never serve time. They'll never be deported. Uh, so they conduct crimes in New York City, and then they travel down to Florida to spend their money. But they come back to New York City because they know they won't be arrested. The difference, Florida enforces the law, New York City doesn't. So it's clear okay. that they respond to incentives. One last thing. Speaking of incentives, so Friday, Mayor Eric Adams of New York City says, hey, we're being overrun by illegals, and he's begging for relief. And then he announces we're going to give every illegal alien family $1,000 cash every 28 days, like he's putting out more cheese. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. They're closing down schools in Brooklyn uh, to house illegal immigrants, sending kids back onto Zoom so that they can further uh, degrade their education. Uh, this, they have sold out the American people. 
for a population that has no interest in being a part of our great national experiment. That's what it sounds like. Ryan, thank you very much. That's Ryan Walker with Heritage Action. It's a pleasure to be with you. If you want to join the conversation, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our poll on X, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. the story of a want to listen to an interview again check out larslarson.com welcome back to the lars larson show it's a pleasure to be with you and i'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails in just a moment you know there was a time before barack obama when the world had decided that Iran should not have any kind of nuclear program, nor not a peaceful program, not one for making bombs. And then, of course, we had the famous JCPOA, the agreement that Barack Obama didn't see fit to put in the form of a treaty and have ratified by the U.S. Senate, but he had the agreement anyway. And Donald Trump, I think, uh, properly got rid of that agreement because it wasn't doing anybody any good. And, in fact, I think it was actually enhancing the danger, danger of Iran. Joe Biden comes into office a little over three years ago and decides he wants to get a JCPOA. So he does all kinds of favors for the country of Iran. So what better time to talk to Henrik Rasmussen, who is executive director of the Institute for Science and International Security. Welcome to the program, Mr. Rasmussen. Thank you, Lars. It's an honor to uh, be with you. Would you mind telling my audience what the Iran threat Geiger counter is? Because I find the idea intriguing. Yes, uh, the Geiger counter is a regular product we put out uh, at the Institute for Science and International Security, where we uh, use the notion of a Geiger counter, which measures radioactivity, to assess the ongoing and unfortunately rising threat from Iran's nuclear program. Uh, We've been putting these reports out uh, regularly over the last year and a half, and we just published the latest one today, and for the first time uh, during those years, uh, we now show an extreme level of danger from Iran's nuclear program. So maybe Joe Biden was right when he made that comment, I think, at a fundraiser probably a year and a half ago and said, we're closer to nuclear Armageddon than we've been in a long time. His assessment may have been right. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I'm afraid that is the case, and I think you gave a good uh, intro here uh, on the JCPOA and the legacy issues there. Uh, I think we need a, a drastic change of course here. Well, and should we take Iran seriously when they, as I understand it, on about a weekly basis, vow to destroy the United States and destroy its ally Israel in the region? I mean, if somebody's saying they're going to kill you, you should probably take them seriously, right? Absolutely. Uh, We take them at their word. And in fact, uh, one of the six parameters we use to measure uh, the threat from Iran's nuclear program in our Geiger counter is what we call hostile rhetoric. Uh, So we take them seriously when they say death to America, death to Israel. Uh, The latest example of hostile rhetoric uh, is actually in, in one of their regime newspapers just today, uh, where they say they're, 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 
stating that they have 500,000 missiles they're ready to fire off and that only 10% of them would be enough to burn all American bases in the Middle East. So they're just highly, highly hostile, uh, and I think we need to take that very seriously. Can you can you help my audience and, frankly, help me understand why this president seems so dead set on negotiating with Iran through a proxy, which happens to be Russia, strange as that seems, uh, and, and that he gets almost nothing, but he keeps making promises and accommodations for the folks I call the mad mullahs of Tehran. Why is he doing that? And is it good for, for U.S. security or international security? Yeah, it's it's hard to uh, get inside the the president's uh, head, of course. Uh, you can only speculate what might be driving. Uh, obviously, I think there's some concern about escalation in an election year. Uh, so there may be political reasons. There's probably also the legacy of the JCPOA. Uh, many of the uh, people that currently serve in the Biden administration were heavily involved in the Obama administration and the creation of the JCPOA, so it may be hard to let go of uh, old approaches and uh, and dogmas. Uh, so it's probably a combination of those things. Uh, at the strategic level, there could also be concern, and some of those concerns are valid, I think, that uh, the Chinese are uh, starting to beat the drum uh, against Taiwan uh, more yep. and more aggressively, and obviously uh, there is uh, Russia's ongoing war against uh, Ukraine, uh, which which would be a reason to try not to escalate things in the Middle East. Uh, unfortunately, I think attempts to try to uh, bottle up the threat from Iran are just making the threat even worse. Okay, from the, I'm, I'm talking to Henrik uh, Rasmussen, who's executive director of the Institute for Science and International Security. Uh, I hear different uh, 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 deadlines that are bounced around by various people. Uh, how far away is Iran from actually having nuclear weapons it could use? Do we know? Because I, I heard a few months ago that they were a month away. So where where do we stand right now, Mr. Asmussen? Yes, there, there are a couple of ways to look at this. Uh, one question to look into is can they build a nuclear weapon based on their current stocks of highly enriched uranium? Uh, our assessment at the Institute is that they could do so uh, with the amount of 60% enriched uranium they have right now. That's below what you call weapons grade, but you can actually, with enough of it, build a crude nuclear weapon. And they have enough uh, to do that now. So what we call nuclear breakout time is effectively zero at this point. And we also estimate that if they wanted to produce 90% enriched uranium, which is what you normally call weapons-grade uranium, uh, it would take them only a week to produce enough of that uh, to build a nuclear weapon based on their current stockpiles. Now, um, stockpiles are not enough uh, to build a nuclear weapon. You also have to uh, weaponize uh, and actually you know, build the bomb, not just uh, have enough fissile material to do so. And there are various estimates there. Uh, currently, uh, we assess that from the time they say go, it would take them about six months uh, to build a crude nuclear weapon. Uh, and it would take them longer if they were going to stand up uh, advanced production capability uh, to serially produce warheads. Um, Is there any reason again, for Iran to hold back from that goal? 
Uh, well, again, it's it's hard to get into the uh, heads of the uh, decision makers. I am worried uh, that we have not established sufficient deterrence at this point. We've been too weak. Uh, we've also been too weak in our response uh, to attacks uh, sponsored by uh, Iran, conducted by uh, their proxies, the Houthis and others. Uh, thankfully, now we're starting to see a little more of a robust response, but uh, this sort of serial weakness uh, in our approach to Iran uh, leads me to be concerned uh, that they are not deterred from going ahead and building a nuclear weapon. The other concern uh, we have at the Institute is that uh, Israel, the United States and our European allies uh, are very distracted right now. Israel, with its war in uh, Gaza and handling uh, the terrorist uh, threats around them, uh, the United States all around the globe and, and Europe, obviously, with the war in Ukraine. So Iran might decide under the cover of all of this instability around the globe to raise a head toward a nuclear weapon. Well, and, and at that point, is there any doubt that many other uh, Middle East states would also then say, well, if they're armed, we need one, too? Well, that's the fear, of course. Uh, uh, without a credible U.S. Um, nuclear umbrella or U U.S. leadership in the region, uh, the Saudis might decide they need their own weapon, uh, and then Turkey might decide they need something, uh, and it would go on and on from there. Uh, and that's the problem, of course, in general with nuclear weapons, that uh, the more states acquire them, the more states are tempted to also acquire their own capability. And at some point, uh, this will spire out of control. That's what it sounds like. That's Henrik Rasmussen, who is executive director of the Institute for Science and International Security. Mr. Rasmussen, thanks very much for the time. Check it out. The Iran threat Geiger counter and Joe Biden's got it ticking right now. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show. something on the Lars Larson show check out posted interviews and podcasts at LarsLarson.com. welcome back to the Lars Larson show what would you do with a man who hunts down a pedophile and then kills him if you were sitting on the jury that's the question that kind of occurred to me over the weekend when I saw this report out of Texas and I wanted to share it with you first welcome to the Lars Larson show it's a pleasure to be with you and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails at 866 hey Lars and if you're a naysayer we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277 send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. you can vote in our poll on X we put up a brand new question each and every day we write it from the news of the day so we try to keep it as fresh as possible and then i'll get to your phone calls in just a moment never forget that this program for more than a quarter century has always put naysayers right to the head of the line so let me tell you about the story a guy by the name of james spencer the third 24 year old man a texas resident what he did 
And we don't know anything more about his background because I'm curious. I'm willing to bet that there's a backstory in there somewhere. But James Spencer III went online and he posed as a child, a minor, a legal minor, and lured a convicted sex offender to his death because he thought that law enforcement was not doing enough to keep pedophiles in prison. And I would tend to agree with him about that, that an awful lot of, uh, you know, law enforcement either has its hands tied by its political masters, whether it's uh, the county sheriff or the city police chief uh, or whether it's the courts or the cops or the prosecutors, whoever it happens to be. The whole system seems to be engineered in such a way to just ignore these things when they go on. And for the life of me, I don't understand why that is. But let me tell you the details on this. So what he did, he uh he got in touch with Sean Connery Showers. I, weird name, but his name is Sean Connery Showers, 37 years old. And he was on a messaging app called Kick. And what he did, James Spencer posed as an underage individual. He figures out how to get this guy to meet up with him. A third party had actually told uh, reporters that he believed uh, that Spencer believed the police were not doing enough to keep pedophiles incarcerated and that Spencer wanted to hurt these men because they would do bad things to little kids and other people and he knew how to track them by an app on his phone. A month later, the defendant made the same comment that if the cops are not going to do anything, maybe he should kill them himself. Now, I feel it necessary to mention at this point Have I ever advocated vigilantism? No, I haven't. Uh, Do I think that people should take the law into their own hands? No, I haven't done that either. But I'll tell you what has occurred to me lately. When I see all of these cases from around the country and even the area where I live, where there are people who do bad things, and in the case of doing bad things to children, that has to be some of the worst. So an honest man goes out and hunts down and then deliberately kills a man with a convicted record of child pornography. He was also a sex offender required to register under the law, who apparently didn't bother to register either. And a man who, because of this conversation, believed that he was meeting up with a child to have sex with the child. And there is no doubt in my mind that the killer broke the law. But the question that occurs to me is, if you were on the jury, Because this guy will end up, if he doesn't cut a plea deal, he'll end up in a trial and there will be a jury. If you were sitting on the jury, would you vote to convict him of murder? Because that's what murder is, the deliberate killing of another human being. Manslaughter is something else. Negligent homicide is something else. But murder is when you deliberately do something to end somebody's life. Or, as a member of that jury, would you consider it a PSA, a public service assassination? Now, I have always believed that people should not take the law into their own hands. But I will tell you, and I've expressed this concern to others over the last several years, uh, going all the way back really to a little bit before the death of George Floyd, when we hear mobs in the streets saying, defund the police, and we see prosecutors getting elected who are elected in part with money from George Soros and other liberals like them who say we shouldn't be putting people in prison. Now, they've done this in many cases legally. They get a prosecutor elected who gets elected on the pledge not to prosecute serious criminals. I believe that the police should act. But lately, they don't, usually because they have their hands tied by politicians. I believe the DAs should prosecute, but they won't. 
They find every excuse in the book. The most recent one, of course, is the case involving four illegal aliens in New York City who beat a couple of cops. They didn't kill the cops, thank God. But they beat them down in broad daylight in Times Square. It was on video. If you want to see the video, you can see it. It is painful to watch. And then you saw a judge decide that they should simply be released without any bail whatsoever. And predictably, what did these illegal aliens do? They went to a social service agency. They lied about who they were. They got on a bus and they fled to California. Now, they'll probably eventually be caught. They'll probably eventually be returned to New York City. But then the question becomes, what do you suppose is going to happen to them? I believe that prison should confine these people. But lately, they've been cutting loose literally thousands of bad criminals. So tell me what citizens should do. Given all those circumstances, do you feel a little bit of sympathy toward James Spencer III? I do. Because I understand his frustration. I'm also wondering whether somewhere in his background there isn't some indication that maybe he was the victim of a child of a, a pedophile who went out and preyed on children. We don't know. I don't know if that's what was driving him or not. But it's going to be interesting to see what they do to him. Uh, it made me think of a case 40 years ago in 1984, and there was a, a man who had a child, a uh, young boy, and the boy was taking karate lessons. And it turned out that his karate instructor was molesting him. And then at one point, the karate instu- instructor, before the parents found out what was going on, took this child, got in the car, and drove to another state, and then molested the boy some more. When that guy was finally caught, they were bringing him back to face justice. And do you know what the dad did? The dad stood at a bank of payphones. That tells you it was 40 years ago. And he waited until this pedophile who'd been molesting his son was walking by, and he shot the guy in the head. Guy lasted for about a day and then finally died. Do you know what the court system did to him? No jail time, no prison time, some probation, and about 300 hours of community service. So the community sent a message. And I'm wondering, at what point do those messages become even louder than they are right now? Because you understand, a lot of us are very, very frustrated by what's going on. Police who won't or can't arrest. Prosecutors who refuse to prosecute. Courts that refuse to convict and refuse to send people off to prison sentences that will actually correct their behavior and send a message that society doesn't tolerate this anymore. Or we could just say, well... We have a system of justice. It doesn't work for the law-abiding people. It does work for the bad guys, and we're just going to have to live with it until our lives are ended, in some cases, prematurely. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. I'm an important job. 